Morning. It really is. Uh, I mean, honestly, it's a privilege to be with you on a number of levels. Um, I mean, honestly, just to be with God's people gathered uh, this morning in the last 20 minutes or 30 minutes has been uh, a gift enough. Thank you guys for leading us and all of you for lifting your voices. Uh, like Jared said, it's been four months. Uh, I'm a televangelist. Uh, I, I only... <laughs> speak into cameras that get recorded, and then I, when I'm done with that, I like roll my eyes and walk away. Um, my 15-year-old son has become my videographer, so we travel around to various sites in Spokane and record videos, and then he edits them and tries to make me not seem completely ridiculous. Um, so I hope you pray for your pastors and leaders uh, right now. This is a tricky time uh, for us to try to figure out what it looks like to honor Jesus, to do just what Jared was saying, to lead our church as well. You know, one, one benefit I was thinking when Jared mentioned uh, uh, mints was that now you all know what your breath smells like uh, because you're wearing those masks all the time. So I just was thinking maybe your mint consumption is going to go up significantly. What you guys represent uh, is a movement of the gospel. Uh, we planted 15 years ago, 16 actually this fall, uh, with a desire to see disciples made and churches planted, and five years ago sent out Jared and Meredith and many, some of you, and now five years later this, and now Joel and Esty Paris uh, have been planted together with you to uh, see more disciples made, and uh, that, that just makes me excited. When I, when I think about what we're doing together, think about uh, a gospel movement, a movement of disciples uh, in the inland northwest, disciples being made and churches being planted, that makes me really excited. I don't know if you know this, Jared mentioned it just a second ago, but there is a deep need right now for people who are deeply formed by Jesus. There's many, many who claim the name of Jesus or, or believe in God in some sort of general sense who are not deeply formed by the truth of the gospel, deeply formed by the word of God, whose lives bleed Jesus. And so we have lots of turmoil happening and unrest happening and so much uh, that is really unhelpful coming from the church. And so uh, one of my deepest longings and hopes is that we would, we would see a movement of people shaped by the gospel, not just that attend church or that read their Bible once in a while or that, that claim a few convictions, but are actually formed, that everyday life, the all of life stuff is deeply shamed, shaped by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so um, I, I love that you're in a series called The Basics. We've taught uh, some of the stuff that you're learning for years now because we just have been so committed to, uh, we, we want to create disciples that when you, when, you're, when you get cut, what you bleed is the gospel. And, and, and no matter what happens, no matter what political things are being stirred up or what's happening in our country, that, that it, if you couldn't gather on Sundays, which, I mean, for us it's been four months, that you would still know what to do. You would know how to be a disciple. You would know how to make disciples. You would know how to gather in community. If Jared suddenly couldn't communicate, let's say he got arrested under persecution, would you know what to do? And the, and the basics is, is really trying to get at that. Like, can we boil it down to what, what's the essence of what it means to follow Jesus, to know and to believe Jesus, and then to be one who makes Jesus known? I, I think of uh, sports analogies. I'm not much of a sports guy, but baseball, I think they used to do this thing called spring training. I don't know if sports even exist anymore. Uh, but spring training, everybody gets together, and you basically learn how to throw a baseball. 
and hit a baseball and catch a baseball. Why? Because being a really good baseball player is just knowing how to do the fundamentals well. That, that's true in just about every sport. If sports aren't your thing, there's, there's this gal named Gabriella, Gabriella Montero. You should look her up. She's a classically trained pianist. She, uh, I mean, concert, she, like, she's unreal. But in her concert, she'll often stop and she'll have somebody from the audience hum out a tune. And, and you can watch these things on, on YouTube. It's fascinating. I mean, the theme song to Oklahoma or, or the, the theme song to Star Wars. Uh, or my favorite is, is, uh, was an NPR thing, uh, and somebody sang, take me out to the ball game. And she, on the spot, having for the most part never heard these songs, composes a concerto, like a 15 to 20 minute piece of music where she kind of like figures out the notes to take me out to the ball game and then just goes. How do you do that? I mean, I imagine that she doesn't do a lot of other things. <laughs> That's what I imagine. <laughs> she doesn't know how to turn on a light or change a light bulb or whatever, but she, like, I mean, if you're going to dedicate, but the, does that make sense? Like, she's so committed to this thing, and she knows her craft so well that on the spot she can make it happen. And I think, man, can we do that as disciples of Jesus in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods? Is it so in us that we just, we know what to do no matter what happens? That's the picture. That's what basics is all about. And my favorite part of basics is taking really what you guys have been looking at the last few weeks is to take this word gospel uh, that we use so often. It's where we get the word evangelical. It means good news. But to take that and, and begin to just unpack it. When, when the Bible says gospel, what, what does it mean? Because it's like this, it's a shorthand term that has been packed and so what I like, love about basics is we take that term and we just begin to unpack it. And we look like, oh my gosh, we begin to just lift up the multifaceted beauty of the gospel and let that diamond shine for all that it is so that as we move forward, when we can kind of come back down, now we can just say, when I say gospel, you know, oh, he doesn't just mean like Jesus died for my sins. He means everything that is ours in Christ, all that we have by the Holy Spirit, all that the Father has given us in our adoption, like all of that is packed into that little tiny word. Uh, Christianity is uh, often described as sort of a solar system. Uh, there's a lot of pieces to it, right? So, I mean, you can think of the, the pieces, right? There's Bible study as a, a piece of Christianity or, or prayer or spiritual warfare or evangelism or using your gifts or tithing. Like all those are pieces of it, right? And, and if you think of it like a solar system, the question is, what, what is the piece that's sort of at the center? Like what does everything else orbit around? Everything orbits around the good news of the gospel. And if you take anything else and you make it the center, the whole system starts to go like this. It, it all gets really wonky. It all gets really off. And so you, you probably, and maybe you've gone through seasons of this in your own Christian life, or you know, know people but who think like the thing is spiritual warfare. And so all they ever want to talk about is spiritual warfare, and masks are spiritual warfare, and government overreach is spiritual warfare, and I couldn't find a parking place, and that was spiritual warfare. Like, you just, does that make sense? Or you, you have people who are, uh, maybe that's about, like, uh, personality and knowing your giftedness, and so they've, like, they've done the DISC, and they've done the Myers-Briggs, and they've done the Enneagram, and they've done all the things, and they, they, when they talk to you, what they want to talk to you about is what's your Enneagram number. Right? And, and sh there's pieces of that, right? Like knowing your giftedness is really important, but it's not the center. The good news of the gospel is the center. And when that's in the center, then you can see how everything else orbits 
Oh, prayer orbits like this. Prayer isn't me trying to convince God who's distant and far away to do something because he doesn't want to do it. Prayer is me coming to my Father who has adopted me, who wants to hear me. But you don't, you don't get that about prayer if you don't have the good news of the gospel in the center, right? Or, or, or giving, right? So giving is a way to like, if I give enough and I get the percentages right, then God will bless my life. Isn't that how it works? Your solar system starts doing this, right? Because you're, you're giving and, and God's not fulfilling his end of the bargain, <laughs> He's not making life go the way you want it to go, right? And, 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 oh, actually, that's not how giving works. God is the giver. God has given the gift of his son. God has used his riches to make, to, to embrace poverty in order to make you rich. And now you are a steward of those resources. And so how you give is a response to the greatness of his love and commitment to you, not a way to get him to be committed to you. Does that make sense? So, we got to have the good news of the gospel in the center. And so I just, I love that basics does that. And I love that that's where you guys have been, just unpacking the good news of the gospel. The gospel is the news about what God has done for us in Jesus. Not advice about what you need to do to be saved, but about what God has already done to accomplish salvation in Jesus, to bring it to you through his spirit with the promise of a a new world coming in which you are going to enjoy him forever. That's the good news and, and it's news that brings joy. So it's something that's been accomplished by somebody else that you get to enjoy. You didn't lift a finger to do anything to earn it or accomplish it, but it's been done on your behalf. And now, as it drops into your life, it begins to bring transformation. It begins to bring joy. It, it powers a new way of doing life. So the gospel is the good news that brings great joy, profound implications for us, life-changing implications, joy-bringing implications. And so what I want to do just briefly, I I, I want to just do a little bit of review of where you've been uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, and then I just want to talk about how how does that transformation actually take place? That's where I want to focus our conversation. So let's start by just remembering all that we've said about what the gospel is, and then we'll talk from there about how does, how does that get rooted into my life. And so we, you've used three statements uh, over the last three weeks to, to summarize the gospel. So a past tense statement, a present tense statement, a future tense statement. Uh, how many of you have been kind of tracking this the last few weeks? Okay, both of you. That's great. Okay. Meredith, thank you. Precedent. Well, great. Then we'll just unpack it together. We'll see how this goes. So uh, I think it's really helpful, like I said before, to take that word gospel and begin to unpack it and to give you some really simple phrases, some, some handles that you can hold on to, uh, again, so that you grab the hold of the basics so that you can do the basics in all the different places that God has you. So the past tense statement of the gospel, do you remember it? We have been what? We have been saved from the Just pretend like you were here and you, and you know it. We, we have been saved. So it's the good news of gracious acceptance. So we're looking back on the perfect life of Jesus and his substitutionary death. Right? So that what we're saying is that on the cross, God places all of our sin on his perfect son who suffers the just penalty Our condemnation falls on the Holy One. And at the same moment, we receive the holiness of Jesus. We receive the perfect record, the righteousness of Jesus. 
right? So it's a, it's a double exchange. Does that make sense? It's, it's not just that your past is taken away and that you're forgiven. It's that actually the perfect righteousness of Jesus is credited to your account so that God the Father treats you today as if you perfectly obeyed, even though you and I both know that's not how it's gone. I mean, think about that. You woke up this morning to the smile of God. Before your feet hit the ground, before you had a chance to get grumpy with your spouse or yell at your kids or whatever, before all of that started happening, God was already delighted in you and pleased with you because of the perfect life of Jesus. So we're looking back. We're saying salvation is an accomplished fact. God did it for us in Jesus. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. The sin that you committed yesterday, the sin that you commit today, and even, get this, the sin that you're going to commit this afternoon has already been dealt with. It's already been, the, the judgment for it has already fallen. So there is no judgment left in God's heart for you if you are in Christ. So we say shorthand, Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I deserved. Right? So that's the past tense. We're looking back. We're saying that's been done. Then there's the present tense, which is the good news of changed lives. And so the, the phrase, it's up there. Do you remember it? We are, wow, you guys, you guys are such good learners. Jared, you're doing a great job. We are being saved from the power of sin. So here, if in the past tense we're thinking about the perfect life of Jesus and his substitutionary death, now we're thinking about his victory over sin, his resurrection. We're thinking about his ascension where he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. And we're thinking about his sending of the Holy Spirit into our lives here and now. So it's rooted in, again, what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we're saying now, by faith in him, you too are seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, the place of honor, the, the place of blessing, the, the place of delight. You, you have a new identity. You are a new creation. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. In other words, when God looks at you, he looks at, he sees his perfect son. And he, I mean, what does the Father say about his perfect son? Oh, I love him. I'm so pleased with him. That's my boy. That's, that's the Father speaking over you this morning because of where you're at. And the Spirit now has come into your life, Paul says, to pour out the love of the Father into your heart, to bring the truth of the good news of the gospel and your standing in Christ into the everyday experience of your life, into your mind, into your heart, so that that becomes the drive shaft of your life. Your life is driven not by a desire to earn love, but as a response to the love that you've received. Not trying to earn favor or earn blessing, but in response to the fact that, as Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians, you have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. There's, God is not holding back, waiting for you to get to a certain stage, and then he'll, he'll pour out more. He's literally given you everything in Jesus from the get-go, from day one. We say it uh, kind of jokingly like this. Uh, we got this from a guy by the name of Jack Miller, but he says, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. And you're more loved than you could ever imagine. All right, and then the, the third statement. Uh, it, it talks of the good news of a, a new world coming. And what's the statement? We are 
there it is, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Right, so there, there is a day coming when all the things that you so deeply struggle with now, the sin that you, you just keep getting entangled in, the shame that comes with that, the fear, the anxiety that, that often grabs hold and drives your life, there is a day coming when you will be completely set free from those things. When those things will be in the past, they will no longer be the struggle for you. You will be free. And not only will you personally be, be free in that day when, when God brings, uh, when, God, when Jesus returns, but he, he, will, he will restore and renew the physical and mental uh, and emotional realities of your life. You will be made whole and he will make this world new. So all of the dysfunction in our world, all the brokenness of our world, the systems of oppression and exclusion, the, the human forces of evil and the spiritual forces of evil, there's a day coming where that will be eradicated. God will deal a final blow to that and he will remake the world. He, Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. And we will dwell here on this earth renewed with, with God as king in our, our presence. That's the world that's coming. Now, the question is this. What shows up in somebody's life who has a deep and profound grasp of all of that? I mean, just like we just have skimmed the surface together in a bit of remembering, but what if that was to just begin to sink into your life, what would begin to show up? What would you be set free from? What, what would you no longer be hindered by? What, what transformate? How would you deal with your money? or your time, or your roommates, or your spouse, or that jerky neighbor. Man, it, it, it would transform everything, would it not? Everything would be different. And so there, there's a need then for this truth that we know to, to, to come in uh, to, to drop deep in and begin to transform from the inside out. That's the process of discipleship or what I would call gospel formation. Uh, I love that word formation because it, it uh, implies that you are constantly, every day, all the time being formed. Right? If you're, if you're watching the news, you're being formed. Whether you're watching liberal news or conservative news, you're, you're, you're being formed. You're being shaped by a particular story, a particular understanding of the world. This thing's the worst. Sorry. <laughs> One of those things I don't miss about uh, preaching on Sundays. You're being constantly formed. And so how, do you, how, does, how does your life be more formed by this thing than by all the other stories and all the other desires and all the other offers out there? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning. I want to try to answer that question. How, how does this truth, this good news gospel reality, how does it get deep inside of me so that I begin to live in different ways? It begins to, to transform, to shape my everyday reality. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 if you have a Bible with you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. Uh, Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. I want you to just, as I read it, I want you to listen. What, what is he asking God to do? 
what is this prayer about? Verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the, pow- to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How does transformation happen? What, what is Paul asking? What is he praying? What is he getting on his knees to ask the Father to do? I think it's uh, instructive to ask maybe a different question first. What is he not asking? Right? At this moment, he could pray about just about anything. He could, he could say, he could, he could go anywhere with his prayers. But what is he, where does he not go? I mean, Jared mentioned it. The early church was largely persecuted. Uh, when, when you think of the church at Ephesus that Paul's writing to, maybe 100 people, maybe 200 people, small little house churches, definitely under persecution of the general kind, where just their neighbors didn't like them. But then more systematic persecution as well, where the Roman Empire, their government opposed them. And at times, like he mentioned under Nero, systematically tried to end the Christian movement. Paul doesn't pray against the emperor. He doesn't pray that persecution would stop and that they would just leave them alone so they can be faithful Christians. He doesn't pray for their health or well-being. He doesn't pray against the spiritual forces of darkness, although in chapter 6 he speaks of them uh, a great deal. He doesn't pray against that here. He doesn't pray that they would be more obedient, that they would be more faithful to Jesus, although, again, very important. He doesn't pray for anybody's cat's, grandma's cat's gallbladder surgery. Have you been in that prayer meeting? doesn't pray about government overreach or masks or social justice or care for the poor or, again, all of these things that maybe are really important, but none of that makes the list at this point for Paul. What is he asking for? He's asking for something far more important, far more central than any of those things. Look at verse 16. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ, he's praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, hold on a second. Doesn't Christ already dwell in their hearts through faith? I mean, he's not writing to non-Christians at this point, right? He's not telling non-Christians, I'm praying that you would become Christians. He's writing to Christians, and yet his prayer is that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. I mean, wouldn't you say that central to being a Christian is Christ dwelling in your heart by faith? 
or look again down at uh, verse 18. He sort of repeats himself. He, he prays that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Don't they know the love of Christ? I mean, wouldn't you say again that that's central to being a Christian is, is knowing that Christ loved you and died for you and gave himself for you? I mean, that like that's almost part and parcel, fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. Like if, if, if somebody said, hey, I really wish that you would know the love of Christ, wouldn't you respond to them and say, well, I, I do. I do know the love of Christ. That's why I'm here. That's why I sing these songs. And Paul, for his part, he spent uh, two, over two years in Ephesus. It's, it's one of the places he spent more time than, than any other of his missionary journeys. So he spent more time teaching and instructing these guys about who Jesus is and about the heights and depths and breadth and length and, and depth of the love of Christ. He spent time telling. And, and chapters 1, 2, and 3, if you go back and read them, are some of the richest theology in all of the New Testament about who Christ is and all that is theirs in Christ. So that's not that they don't know. He's writing to people who know Jesus and believe in Jesus and are grounded in the love of Jesus. And yet, here he is pleading with the Father. In those days, uh, you generally prayed standing up. I loved it this morning. We kind of gathered as a team before everyone started to gather to, and, and we prayed together. And Jared and, I mean, almost everybody just got down on their knees. So in Paul's day, you, you didn't get down on your knees unless you were desperate. And so here he is saying, I bend my knees before the Father. I'm pleading with the Father to do this. In other words, this is Paul's greatest priority. He's pleading with the Father by the Spirit to do this one thing, right? This is the thing that you and I need more than anything else, regardless of whatever challenges and situation you're going through, whatever relational conflicts or physical ailments or personal persecutions that you're experiencing. Above all, here's what you need, that Christ would dwell on your heart. That you would know beyond just knowing, that you would know, that you would be gripped by the love of Christ for you. That it wouldn't just be information, but that you would, you would have a deep sense, a deep reality of the limitless dimensions of Christ's love for you, and therefore be so filled, you would be overflowing with it. I, I love this, but it's also a bit of a rebuke, isn't it? Because what Paul is saying then is the normal Christian experience, the normal Christian life, is that we don't really know what we think we know. We don't really believe what it is that we think we believe, or, or we do it at maybe such a thin level that it hasn't dropped in to really transform us. What he's saying is that there's a gap between what you confess to believe and what you functionally believe. Do you get the difference? Right? Confessional belief, like, I mean, those three statements, if you're a Christian, you would say yes to all three of those statements. Right? Those are just biblical summaries of Christian faith. So why do you feel like you have to defend yourself when your wife says, why is the kitchen faucet dripping again? Or maybe that's just me. Because <laughs> I'm immediately into self-defense at that point, self-justification. I have to defend myself. I, oh, maybe I don't actually believe that I've been justified. I mean, we do this with a ton of areas of life, right? I, I, health is the one that comes to mind, um, I mean, I know that eating a lot of ice cream is not 
the best thing for me. Um, like there's plenty of studies <laughs> that show that. Uh, and I really like Tillamook uh, mudslide. Have you had it? Don't start because it is like crack. Uh, and uh, I've basically decided in my life I'm, I'm going to work out so that I can eat Tillamook ice cream. It, thank you. <laughs> uh, right? Like we, there's all sorts of things like that. We, we know what's best and yet we, can, we, we functionally choose otherwise. And what Paul is saying is that it's the same with the gospel. You, though you know what is true, you functionally live out of a different reality. You know the right theology, you believe in Christ, you have him dwelling in you, you know his love, and yet you're failing to deeply appropriate it, to be transformed on it, to really build your life on all that is yours in Christ. Imagine this, you've been given a massive sum of money. Today, as you're walking out of the building, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I just want you to know I deposited a million bucks into your checking account last night which is awesome, right? I mean, you would celebrate that. You would be so, I think, most of us would be excited about that. Uh, but, but then you realize it's Sunday and the bank's closed. And you forgot your PIN number. So here's the reality. All that belongs to you and you have no access to it. And so for the rest of today, you're going to live like you still have nothing in your bank account. That's the picture that Paul's painting for us for normal Christianity. We have all of the resources, and yet we're not accessing it. We're not, we're not grabbing a hold of it and living off of it. We're not making withdrawals, or if we are making withdrawals, it's like pennies a day, just sort of dabbling a little bit in Christianity. And then, like, so we know enough. Here's what happens in, for us as Christians. We know enough to know that we're messed up, right? We've gone to church long enough to know, like, there's a lot of things that I should be doing, a lot of ways that I should be loving and serving and, and giving that I'm just not doing. So we know enough to know that we're in trouble, but we don't know enough of the love of Christ to put our hearts at rest and to really be set free and to really go, and yet I know God is for me and he loves me and he wants to transform me and set me free from these things. And so think about what you become. When, like when you don't know the depths of the love of Christ, we become some of the worst people in the world as Christians. That's why the church can be one of the least safe places for sinners to be. Because we get judgmental. We get self-righteous. We cover up our own sense of shame and guilt by putting that on other people. We blame shift. We can't just accept the fact that we often are wrong. Right? We begin to base our acceptance with God on our obedience. Right? And so we ride this roller coaster of like, well, I've been, I feel like I've been doing good, so God must be pleased with me. And then we do that thing that we've been trying hard not to do for so long, we do it again. And then we're like despondent and despairing and we kind of pull back and we don't engage in community and we don't love our neighbors and we don't open our Bible because we're sure that God is disappointed in us. Right? So we, we, we don't know what we say we know. And so this is why Paul's on his knees. This is why Paul is pleading with the Father to send the Spirit. Give them the power to comprehend all that they have. I mean, think about that. He's asking God to give you the Spirit of God to just be able to begin to even comprehend you. God's love for you is so massive, all that you have in Christ is so beyond your comprehension that apart from the Spirit's work in your life, you won't even begin to grasp it. And so he's, he's just praying that the Spirit of God would do this work and, and make your eyes uh, uh, open and your heart open to receive all that is yours in Christ. 
Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Richard Loveless, he, he, he talks about how the gospel needs to go into the unevangelized territories of our hearts. And I think that's such a powerful picture. Like we think of the unevangelized territories of the world, like the 1040 window and, and these millions of people who have never heard the name of Christ. And, and Richard Loveless says, yes, that's true. And, and, and yet at the same time, there, there are unevangelized territories in your heart. There are places where the good news of the gospel has not worked in. And God, and what Paul's praying is that God would send the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the missionary, into those unevangelized territories to bring the good news of the gospel to bear, to set you free. That the love of God for you would explode from within. It would metastasize. It would no longer be contained in, in small little chunks of your life, but would begin to move out into all the depths of who you are. That you would come to know how broad God's love is how deep that you would swim in the depths of it, that you would see the heights of it, that you have been raised up from the pit of hell and seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of honor and blessing and glory, that you would see all that is yours in Christ and that it would come alive as fire in your heart. And I, and I love this. This is Paul's transition between the first three chapters, his gospel theology, and the next few chapters, which is his gospel ethics or gospel culture. Here's how we live. He knows that if the truth sinks in, you'll have power to live this way. If the good news of the gospel has its way in you, sin will lose its allure. I heard Tim Keller say this years ago, and it, and I, it is, uh, I've just never... I think I've never gotten over it, honestly. He says the sin underneath all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ. If you hear nothing else, hear that this morning. The sin underneath all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ. In other words, when your heart is so deeply satisfied in Jesus, everything else loses its allure. I mean, what are, what are we looking for in pornography? What are we trying to do in gossip? What, what are we trying to do in self-protection? Right? In all of those places, we're after joy. We think that they're going to bring some sort of satisfaction or freedom or life that they simply cannot bring and do not provide. And if I had that and I was deeply aware that it was already mine in Christ, the moment I got out of bed this morning, would those things begin to lose their allure for me? Would I no longer need to gossip in order to make myself feel better or look at pornography to escape the pressures and realities of life or on and on, Right? Lack, or the, the sin underneath all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ. And not only that, if we were filled to the full, we would naturally fulfill the, love, the, the law of Christ. We wouldn't have to think about ourselves so much anymore, which means you'd have a lot more brain space to think about your neighbor. <laughs> I mean, it's really that simple, isn't it? I don't have time to care for my neighbor, Jesus, because I'm too busy caring for myself. And you know what? If I don't care for myself, who will? which the Father says, right, we, could be, we could care for the poor. We, we could give time and money and energy away. We could be agents of peace and reconciliation in our world. We could live with that, that beautiful mix of humility and courage that just is not found outside of Christ. And so what I'm saying is this is how formation happens. The Holy Spirit has to take the good news of the gospel and drive it deep into your life. Work it out into all the nooks and crannies. Now, oh man, we're running out of time. What time am I done? 
now? Hmm. Land the plane, Steve. I'm, I'm sorry, this is my first time preaching in four months. I've got like four months worth of material. So the question just briefly, how do, we, how do we build our lives and how do we build our churches on this? Because here's the reality. You can have gospel doctrine, but not have gospel culture. You can have a church that affirms all of the right things about Jesus, and yet it's awful to be a part of. Right? The, the, the flavor of the church, the, the culture of your life together. Does our shared life resemble the love of our Father? So we use a, a little simple uh, equation uh, to kind of summarize how this transformation happens. Now, before I give you the equation, let me just say clearly this is a work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul, Paul is not even relying on his own work. I mean, he laid the gospel foundation. He brought all of these people to Jesus. He discipled them for two years. He's written them great theology, but he's not, he doesn't say to them, now, just take everything that I've told you and, and do it. He says, Father, please send your spirit because these guys are not going to get it. Right, so above all, this is spirit work. So if there's anything, else, anything to, to be said, is like, let's ask the Holy Spirit to do the work in us. And at the same time, we don't just sit on the couch and eat our Tillamook ice cream hoping that the Holy Spirit's going to show up and do something. Right? There's ways for us to put ourselves in the place where the Spirit can work. And so we use this really simple little equation that I think is, is helpful to think through how transformation happens. It's three, three pieces, gospel plus safety plus time. How does change happen in your life? Number one, you need a whole lot of gospel. You need to sing it. You need to read it in the Word. You need to pray it. You need to remind one another of it. Right, Paul never got tired of reminding people of the good news of the gospel. In fact, I think it's in 2 Timothy that he says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, which is a crazy statement. Like, at what point would Timothy have forgotten Jesus Christ? And yet, the truth is, he forgot it just the way that you forget it. We need to get our focus. We need to rehearse it. We need to retell it. We need to remember it. We need to remind one another because our, our default is always moving towards religion. Our default is not moving into the gospel. It's always moving away. We're always drifting away. And so we're just we're in this place where we're constantly reminding, returning, coming back together. So number one, a lot of gospel. So, I mean, that's so important. Gathering in, your, in the word, song, a prayer, all those things. Secondly, safety. I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 18 that he says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. You don't come to know the fullness of the love of Christ on your own. This is, this is not, I mean, going into your closet on your own, reading your Bible and prayer, that's part of it. But, but when Paul envisions us growing to maturity, he envisions us doing that together. It is a community project. In fact, if you go further on in chapter 4, he says our job is to speak the truth to one another in love. And he doesn't mean just like, bro, Jared, that's a pink shirt. Sorry, bro, but it's true. Don't wear a pink shirt. He doesn't mean like that kind of truth. He means speaking the gospel truth to one another. Sorry, I noticed that moment I walked in. And I, and I judged you for it. Sorry, safety. Uh, this is a, right? So that, that, that's a great example. It creates a non-safe place. S safety is this reality that together we are living in our need for Jesus. In other, what, in other words, what unites us together is not how far along we are in the journey of Christian faithfulness, 
but our shared need for a rescue, our shared need for a Savior. And so we come together to confess sin. We come together to tell our stories. We come together to be honest about where we are still today in need of Jesus. One of the questions we love to ask in our community is, where have you seen your need for the gospel this week? And it just creates this space for people to say, like, hey, here's where where I'm I failed. Uh, here's where I was short with my spouse. Here's where I just lost it on my kids. Here's where I missed this opportunity with my neighbor. And we, we share in confession and need and we create a, a context where it's safe because how, does the, how do those unevangelized territories get out into the light? Only if I confess them. Only if I bring them out. Right, so gospel plus safety and then plus time. If there's anything true about real growth and change is that it does not happen overnight. We gotta look at each other in the eyes and say, I'm with you for the long haul on this thing. I know that you're more of a mess than you let on. You know that I'm more of a mess than I let on, but we're in it. And I commit to not be surprised when you confess your sin. Like, oh, shock. My community is full of sinners. No, we're gonna press in, right? Uh, Paul says elsewhere that we, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's not very much. One degree is like this. Right? Like, I mean, it's almost, almost imperceptible. Except for the people around us going, you're different. Gospel plus safety plus time. The equation just acknowledges we do have a role. I mean, the Spirit has to do it. We're going to ask Him to do it. But in our life together, our shared community together, we can commit to these things, to rehearse the gospel regularly, to confess our sin regularly, to commit to be with one another, to work it out. And so I just would ask you, church, as we end, what, what, what might God do if we were just gripped by the good news of the gospel like this? And we committed together to work it in, to massage it in as the Spirit leads us into all the nooks and crannies of our lives. Listen to where Paul ends. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God intends to put his glory on display through you as this work happens by his Spirit. We're going to take communion together, uh, which is really a perfect way to practice gospel plus safety plus time. We're remembering the good news of the gospel together. We're doing it in a context of community where it's safe to go to the table and, and take the little cup with a wafer on top, bread, juice, body of Christ broken for you, wine poured out, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. It's a place in which you come saying, I am one who needs a Savior. So we'll do that together. I invite you to come as you're ready as the worship team leads us. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we, um, we do bend our knees before you. We are asking that you would do something that we cannot do on our own. That even as we sing, as we come to the table, as we respond together this morning, that we would taste and see that you are good that the truth that we know would uh, drop from our minds to our hearts, would explode into our realities. We commit together to that process. We commit together to that journey uh, and ask that you would do it by your spirit. In Jesus' name.